Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors for the journal Global Symmetry. It's my pleasure today to introduce to you Jeremy Paul Thiel. Jeremy has spent a career in the academic field examining China and China's relations with the West. The decision by the Trump administration to impose tariffs on China and to demand uh, changes to the bilateral trade and investment policy has had a real consequences for the U.S.-China relations. But in fact, as we discuss with Jeremy, it has had significant relations with other uh, allies of the United States, and in this case, uh, Canada. Jeremy is a professor of political science at Carleton University in Ottawa and was a visiting professor uh, at the Department of International Relations at Tsinghua uh, University in uh, Beijing in 2009. He's written very widely on uh, uh, Chinese foreign relations. So it's a real pleasure for me to introduce this colleague from Carleton, Jeremy Paltiel. Welcome, Jeremy. It's a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Yeah. So what I was hoping we could do today is to uh, discuss with you kind of uh, Chinese leadership. Where is it going? What's the, you know, kind of um, view now of uh, President uh, Xi Jinping and his uh, domestic and international efforts. And then I wanted to turn uh, to you also to talk about uh, the current tensions between Canada and China, uh, and in particular the arrest of uh, Meng Wanzhou, uh, who is the chief financial officer of Huawei, and, you know, kind of Chinese actions that arose, apparently, from from that arrest by Canadian authorities at the request of the United States. So let's let's kind of turn first to President Xi Jinping. Um, wh what do you think, Jeremy, is the current uh, efforts of uh, the chairman? I mean, is his political actions in the last uh, while... Uh, simply a kind of raw power grab uh, by him and the people around him, the elimination of his rivals within the party uh, through his anti-corruption campaign and, you know, enhanced centralization of the Chinese Communist Party. Is there something beyond that in your view as to what is going on with, uh, with Chinese leadership? Um, I think we can separate and uh, factor out some of the differences between the personal aspects and the structural or systemic aspect. And I want to talk first about the systemic aspect. I think that there was a um, consensus at, the, at some of the top level, but particularly Xi Jinping himself, after the 2008 financial crisis, that China's moment has arrived and that, moreover, that China's government, China has nothing to apologize for in terms of its 
governance system, that if anything, China's governance system is equal or superior to those of Western countries. Um, and this also arrives at a moment when, of course, from the West point of view, since the reform and opening up of 1978, there was always a kind of blithe notion that as China opens up, it'll gradually converge in one form or another with Western systems. And this is not something that Xi Jinping wants or he hopes for. In fact, um, what he worries about and what other people in the communist system worry about is that as the reform and opening up um, proceed, that the ideology, ideological basis um, of the Chinese Communist Party will erode and be hollowed out. So what we've seen since 2012 is both a demonstration of um, confidence in the uh, sustainability of the Chinese system and its competitiveness on a global basis, and also a defensive move to try and to basically seal up alternatives to it in an effort to make sure that the regime is sustainable over the long haul. But when you say uh, the system's sustainable, I take it you mean that, as you see it, the dominance of the Chinese Communist Party in right. both the economy and, and obviously in the and it's leading uh, in politics in China. Exactly. I mean, Xi Jinping says <clears throat> that quite forthrightly. Mm -hmm. um, that, and, and even Deng Xiaoping said it at one point, that the system boils down to the leadership of the Communist Party. Well, and I mean, you know, one of the uh, elements that we've seen in this, obviously we've seen the uh, anti-corruption campaign, which I take it has some uh, popular base, but but we've also seen then um, <clears throat> a slowdown, if not a reversal, uh, of the effort to, ref uh, to reform the economy in China. And what's that all about? Well, here is, I think, I think Xi Jinping is caught up in a self-contradiction. I think you're missing one other piece. Okay. The anti-corruption campaign has been accompanied by actually sustained effort to put the Communist Party leadership system into some form of normativized, uh, legalized basis within the Chinese system. You have seen a whole series of inner party documents about rules and regulations, uh, about conduct, about uh, corruption, about um, all kinds of rules uh, that have been elaborated in an effort to, to make a, the system, the Chinese communist system, a normative system. Um, and Xi Jinping does not believe that there's a contradiction between his centralized communist leadership and a market economy, in fact, the opposite. He, sim he believes that you can have both. Now, you and I may disagree that you, about the 
a possibility of having a decentralized market system with a centralized political system. But he actually, I think, believes in his own propaganda <laughs> that that um, that the economic system based on markets is one thing, and the political system based on the Communist Party is another thing, and that they are totally compatible. And so that, um, whereas there were a whole series of reform proposals put out um, from the uh, 18th Party Congress on, mm -hmm. the 3rd plenum, the 4th plenum, the 5th plenum, um, these, doc these documents remain in force. And uh, Xi Jinping continues to argue that um, the market should play the decisive role in the allocation of factors of production. But so it, there's yeah. been no retreat from that um, actual that commitment. Um, there have been some tactical and practical um, retreats from some aspects of reform based on certain kinds of difficulties, such as the outflow of uh, of a trillion and a half dollars. Uh, of uh, foreign exchange reserves in 2015, mm -hmm. uh, um, and then and what what you have seen, and this is this is perhaps what is peculiar and interesting, is that I mean, as Xi Jinping has said, uh, and I'll quote him directly, that um, economic development requires both the visible and the inv the invisible and the visible hand. Mm -hmm. And he's out to prove that the visible hand supplements the invisible hand and that they are not in contradiction to another. And therefore, when, for example, in response to some of the outflow of funds in 2015, they used rather political methods, uh, strong arming Wang, you know, Wang Jianlin, the head of China's biggest real estate board, to uh, divest himself of his overseas um, real estate um, holdings, um, in some cases, some some people disappearing, um, who were also involved in some of these overseas efforts. Um, as far as he's concerned, these are not in contradiction; they are supplementing each other. I mean, what we have seen, though, as well, is the you know there seemed to be an effort to reform and to enable. The private sector, to which is you know, far more efficient, as best we understand it, we look at Nick Lardy's "Markets Over Mao" that tells us that the private sector component is far more efficient and productive uh, than uh, the state-owned enterprise, the public system, and yet um, uh, Xi Jinping appears uh, to be favoring. Uh, the state-owned enterprises, and moreover, bringing the party into uh, direct uh, involvement with the private yeah. sector as well. So, so if he's favoring those elements, uh, how does China continue to grow so significantly in the face of the you know who he favors and who he doesn't? Look, I don't have any argument with you on the economic grounds, but I'm trying. We, we should try to put ourselves into the head of Xi Jinping. Okay. Xi Jinping does not believe he is making a choice of one over the other. Mm -hmm. He uh, last November he made a big speech in 
um, you know, encouraging private enterprise, um, promising that they will be allocated more capital, that the banking system will will work in their favor. Um, he faces what he doesn't see as a contradiction, but you and I see as a contradiction. He believe he first of all believes that the state-owned sector is absolutely necessary to maintain the party's power. In essence, what he wants is there's a, both a direct hand in the economy through the state, but more the other side of it is it, is it believes that the power of the party will erode if it does not have its own economic managers in the market system. That is to say, the state-owned enterprises are the training ground for cultivating party cadres who can handle market economics and market management in, if you like, political competition with the private sector, not so much economic competition, that they should be good at economically um, Com competing with them so that the party can maintain its political dominance. Um, he understands that the private sector plays an important role in the national economy, but he also has, and then this is the, the growing consistency of C's thing, whether he set out to be as consistent in 2012 with the 18th Party Congress, but certainly since the 19th Party Congress, mm -hmm. he's Growingly consistent that you know you know the Chinese phrase that it comes up that borrowed from the Mao years, um, north, south, east, west, middle. The party controls everything. That's a slogan that he of, of Mao's from 1964 that he revived mm -hmm. with the help of Wang Qishan, by the way. Right. Wang Qishan was was one actually the first person who pronounced that slogan again, um, and so he. Therefore, is trying to streamline the political leadership system in a centralized way through the institutions of the party, including the private sector. So that now, as you you are correct in saying, any in any private enterprise where there are three or more party members, there have to be a party branch established, mm -hmm. and uh, um, and that's what they're trying now. So, but he does not. He believes that that the market is in some sense non-political, um, that he can have maintain political leadership and that the market can continue to function. You and I and many Chinese private entrepreneurs may disagree with him. Yeah. But, but I think he believes in his own rhetoric. Fair enough. And, and as you know, our colleague, who uh, Nick Lardy from Peterson Institute, who wrote Markets Over Mao in 2014, now has uh, about to release a book called The State Strikes Back. And obviously, uh, he's now narrating the, you know, the growth of the state-owned enterprise sector under Xi Jinping, notwithstanding uh, the third plenum uh, where there um, uh, of the 18th Party Congress, where there seemed to be some effort to favor the private sector that no longer seems to be the case well that's not true they i mean there as recently as november there was a, there was a big high level meeting talking about favor, favoring the private sector mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. They, um, and we should also point out that the growth of the state-owned sector um, preceded CGP. This goes back to the late right. 2000s, yep. um, late aughts, and uh, as a result, mainly of the uh, growth of the resource sector in the Chinese economy, um, at a, a sector that's dominated by state-owned enterprises, right. and also the investment push. Those two things, the, the investment push after the 2008 financial crisis, both of those, and the growth of the resource sector prior to it, um, both of those increased the share of the um, the state sector in relation to others. Of course, the ongoing problem is the misallocation of capital right. um, due to the fact that the state-owned banking system systematically favors state-owned enterprises. Right. Um, and uh, uh, from going back to my, my own interviews, going back to the 19th 90s, part of the reason is that the um, this state-owned banking sector is very poor at um, actually assessing risk in the private sector. Um, and so they favor the state-owned sector because they're risk-averse. Okay. Uh- that is to say, they know that the state-owned enterprise cannot disappear with its uh, with with a briefcase and end up in Panama. Right. <laughs> well, we but we are also aware, and, and Nick Lardy has helped us on this in understanding that it is that these state-owned enterprises are not highly productive, not particularly efficient. So no, there's no the question that the efficiency of capital in the state-owned sector is much much lower. So and, how, and how capital, do we see China's economy growing? in the formative way that we've seen it in the past in the, in light of, you know, how Xi Jinping is, in quotes, organizing the party. As I try, and I'm trying to explain, I think it is a contradiction. Okay. And, um, and but, the, but the crisis point hasn't, I mean, we may be getting close to the crisis point this year, this year but the crisis point has not yet been reached where they cannot meet their growth targets and they're worried about um, new sources. They, they're, they're well aware of the problem, and they are trying to address it continuously. They haven't abandoned their reform plans. However, they, they want to have their cake and eat it too. That's the essence. Okay, that's fair. So let's turn a little bit more to the political side. Where does Xi Jinping take Chinese foreign policy? On more on you know in the uh, competition rivalry with particularly the United States, how does he see that developing uh, over the next uh, uh, over the next while? Well, actually, Xi Jinping has found himself in a place which he didn't wish to be. Mm-hmm. The assumption behind the BRI, the assumption behind Xi Jinping's more assertive role was that this was incremental, not alternative. And that, that uh, um, Xi Jinping believed that China could grow its place in the world without upsetting the basic infrastructure of the rules-based international order. 
That's the way in which you can understand his uh, January 2017 double speech. He's China needs the rules-based international order, perhaps more than any other state in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's aware of this. However, nobody has much faith in China being the guarantor of the rules-based international order. That's his problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but I want to add something to the previous discussion as well as explain, bring this discussion forward because there's an interesting problem here. Um, when the trade frictions with the United States blew up over the past year, right? In July, June, July of the of 2018, Xi Jinping was in deep trouble politically, domestically. He was blamed for the trade frictions with the United States, and that w- was um, a source of anxiety at all levels. Uh, of Chinese society. However, he ended up being stronger rather than weaker because his response was, look, the trade frictions are coming from a place where the United States does not want to see China rise. And the consensus is that the the United States from the, the right wing of the Republican Party to the left wing of the Democratic Party is unhappy with China. And so that even if we were to make some concessions, that basic American attitude will not change. Moreover, Xi Jinping says, who can make, who can strike a deal with, with, with Trump? I am the man who has the direct line to Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. This basically shut up the liberal opposition because the liberal opposition had no answer to the problem of who can reach a deal with Trump that will save us from the current frictions. That strengthened Xi Jinping's hand and the more hostile the United States uh, Washington establishment is, the stronger Xi Jinping becomes domestically. Um, and this is an irony. Um, it's not permanent, right? Because Xi Jinping has to, also has to deliver, right? He has to actually uh, help China get out of the impasse that uh, a trade war with the United States might bring. Um, but so long as he seems to hold, and pun intended, the Trump card. <laughs> Um, then the liberal opposition has no place to go. But the liberal opposition was substantial and remains substantial, um, but in the background, because they can't afford to show themselves until they actually have an alternative, and they don't. So in in the light of this, I mean, you know, there's been much talk, at least in some of the think tank circles within the United States, of a return to Cold War. Uh, and here, obviously, the rivalry and competition is principally U.S.-China. Do you see that as a, a likely... Uh, evolution of the relationship, or are we, or can we uh, draw something different that 
I am pessimistic. I think that we are on a slide towards a Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, with it's we're not headlong rush. I mean, you and I both have some familiarity. You probably more than I with the Washington establishment. It is striking that in a city where there is an absolutely enormous political divide, there is one issue on which there is consensus from right to left, and that is to push back on China. Mm-hmm. And even if Trump reaches a deal with China, it will be attacked by the Democrats. So there is... I see no way out of this impasse unless something fundamentally changes, and I cannot see how under the current circumstances. Now, the problem is with the United States is how to manage this slide, if you want. I mean, um, the, if you look at uh, whether it's Nick Lardy or the report by the Asia Society with Susan Shirkin and the others, Essentially, um, what you get is a sense of is disenchantment mm-hmm. with China. Yes, um, and that uh, we we're having we're having the veil torn from our eyes, and therefore we have to push back. The question is, what are the tools, the methods? Because the problem that this new Cold War is very different from the old Cold War. Um, the Soviet Union was a closed, largely a closed system, with a closed autarkic economy. Um, whereas China is the world's largest exporter, and it is deeply embedded in the global economy. So the tools that were used during the Cold War will not work with China, or and if you try to work, with, use them, you will end up hurting yourself, possibly twice as much. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's take let's take a small segment of this. In the current trade talks, there is much talk about structural changes in the Chinese economy to um, protect Western intellectual property, um, to push back on Chinese industrial policy. Um, at the same time, there is also talk of Cold War type. Um, COCOM type restrictions on technology transfer, right. even even students. Now, you can't have both. If you use the... Um, if you are China, or if you're Xi Jinping, if you're faced with technology control, technology transfer controls, uh, cuts to research, you have only two choices. Industrial policy or predatory policy, cyber espionage. Mm-hmm. Okay, and if you're going to undertake structural reforms, you have to be confident that technological cooperation can continue. And I don't see anything other than a kind of rotten compromise that might a short-term compromise on these two issues from Washington that would enable actually a a robust program of structural reform to go forward. Um, And so I feel that we are in an impasse which is inevitably leading us towards a slow slide. 
towards a, 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 a new type of Cold War in which essentially um, the United States will be trying to um, counteract predatory practices of, at various levels, both at the tr trade level and at the um, uh, cyber espionage or industrial espionage level, and that will in turn actually provoke the Chinese to do more. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, if you have a different opinion, I, I, I'd be glad to hear it, but I don't see what the alternatives are. And in the meantime, what you will see is perhaps minor pushback by or mediating role by the EU trying to preserve some space for cooperation while the United States is moving more or less deliberately towards a more restrictive policy because obviously the EU has an interest in maintaining some of these uh, technological and other links its own industry. But, well, let, let me I, just... I, I don't, I, but, but my problem is that I don't know where this will end up. Right. I know where it's, I know where it's leading. Okay. I, I mean, the one, uh, you know, kind of picking up from your, uh, this slide that you're talking about, uh, I, I reference again one of our, our colleagues, Harry Broadman, uh, out of Washington, who, of course, worked for the World Bank and worked in China and then uh, worked at USTR and so forth. And he said, and his view is that what needs to happen now is a f kind of full court press, not just by the United States, mm -hmm. but also by uh, the, as you point out, the European Union and also Japan in mm -hmm. pressing uh, through the WTO and potentially elsewhere to again, push China to live up to the obligations that it uh, undertook at the time of accession back uh, in the early aughts, right? right. That, that this is the only way to really improve that situation, that it's not just an American approach uh, or a Trump approach, let's say, to, to, uh, to this uh, effort. I mean... I don't know if you have any reaction to that particular. No, I, I, mean, I, I, I would agree, except that we, do, we have Mr. Trump in Washington who doesn't right. believe in any of that. In the multilateral approach. He doesn't right. believe in the multilateral yeah. approach. And, 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 and whose who's trade sector is now hobbled. By the end of the year, the WTO dispute resolution sure. uh, will, cease to, will cease to function. Yeah, although. So, 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 so you would need a sea change. In Washington, mm -hmm. and but and and a sea and and a Washington that is willing to work together with the EU, Canada, Australia, Japan, um, in trying to forge right. a multilateral consensus on ways which they actually uh, um, have to work. And here, there's another element involved here. Which uh, let me prefigure some of our discussion on Canada. Right. Um, the Huawei issue is both a security issue and a trade issue. The United States has no player in 5G technology. And one is permitted to speculate whether some of the pressure on Huawei is not 
motivated only by security concerns, but on technological competitiveness concerns. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And it's not just me who says this. Canada says this. Britain says this. The EU says this. So the problem is how can we create in the West an atmosphere of trust that somehow tries to disaggregate these issues of security and um, and, techno and, and com competition. Right. Especially when the Trump administration is willing to use a profitably used security concerns to press its trade agenda. Okay. Well, let's let's turn then, Jeremy, to uh, the Huawei issue. Maybe you can uh, tell the audience uh, it briefly what the kind of the center of this uh, uh, conflict between the Chinese government and the Canadian government uh, is and has been for a, a time. Well, this essentially did not begin as a Canada-China problem. Um, and, uh, um, you know, Ms. Meng was accused in the Eastern or Southern District of New York, I can't remember which district of New York, uh, <laughs> of, of um, bank fraud, um, but because of a presentation she made to HSBC regarding a company which uh, Huawei denied was associated with it, but was involved in um, cell phone technology in Iran. Right, Skyway, I believe it is. Skyway was called, all called, and that and that that was was a, 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 um, a because it was involved in sanctions, and HSBC had already been sanctioned for Iran-related activity. The fact that she made this presentation is seen as evidence of trying to fraudulently convince HSBC to um, process U.S. dollars from Huawei. Um, even though um, that that um, might bring it into jeopardy. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened? Now, so, so, so so that was a, now this is probably a sealed indictment. Right. And um, and uh, um, but as all Canadians know, when you fly through U.S. airspace. Your airline gives your passport number to the um, Homeland Security, essentially, U.S. Transportation Authority. Right. And, and uh, um, Ms. Meng was flying from China to Mexico um, with a stopover in Vancouver. That meant that her passport number would have been recorded, and the American authorities, who had already indicted them, uh, inform the Canadian authorities that, they, that when that she should be detained when she stops over in Vancouver under the Canada-U.S. extradition treaty. Right now, she's the and chief this, financial this, officer, right? Of, I mean, uh, she's the chief financial officer. She's the chief financial, financial of Huawei Technologies, right? Now, Huawei Technology, for our Canadian listeners, is the premier Chinese um, telecommunications technology company. Uh, in fact, even The Economist says that it has more proprietary technology, that it has invented itself than almost any other uh, leading Chinese technology firm. Mm -hmm. And um, so this is the jewel in the crown. It is more or less detaining Ms. Meng in Vancouver with, 
I would say is the equivalent of detaining Sheryl Sandberg, uh, the chief operating officer of um, Facebook in Vancouver. It is of that scale as far as the Chinese government and the Chinese people are concerned. Right. But moreover, it happened in the midst of trade negotiations between Washington and China, in which Huawei and its role in te and, and technology figured prominently. Now, in order to detain someone for extradition, Ms. Meng's arrest warrant had to be signed personally by the Attorney General of Canada, who at that, at that time was none other than the redoubtable Ms. Jody Wilson-Raybould. So she had to sign Ms. Meng's warrant in order for her to be detained in Vancouver. That, now, the question is, and whereas the Canadian government has more or less consistently argued that this was a rule of law issue and therefore an automatic issue, there was a political element from the beginning, and there will be a political element at the end, where once again the, the Attorney General will have to certify extradition, um, most li likely on recommendation of cabinet. So from the Chinese point of view, Canada undertook a political choice to arrest Ms. Meng, and did so in the midst of a uh, trade friction between the United States and China, for which the Chinese concluded that China Canada is essentially piling on on the Washington side in its trade dispute with China. Mm -hmm. That is the Chinese position. All right. Uh, the question but then arises, well, the Chinese have arrested uh, two Canadians, not related to the Huawei you know, case itself, but nevertheless two Canadians in China, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrick. Yeah. What does this signal about uh, China-Canada relations? I mean, we, we, we are now in a kind of... Uh vicious circle, if not a death spiral. <laughs> um, Mr. Trudeau came into power promising to improve relations with China. Right. This has set us into the opposite direction. What I do not understand right. is when the arrest warrant was signed, why the Prime Minister's office and the Global Affairs Canada did not have a strategy to deal with China. Uh, what strategy are you contemplating, uh, Jeremy? I mean, as I put it, I said, I said, certainly as soon as Michael Spavor was was uh, um, arrested, arrested, yeah, I would have got on the phone and asked Mr. Jean Chrétien to go to China. I mean, to former for our for our larger China. audience outside of Canada, and there are many folks outside of Canada. He is former prime minister, right? Canada's former prime minister who, during his period in office, China called Canada uh, China's best friend in the world. Right. With a good relationship. 
well, at the very least, the Canadian government needed to reassure the Chinese that this was not a piling on in the trade dispute. I see. And um, because there was a previous signal, Canada signed on to, to Clause 10A of the USMCA, which essentially blocks Canada from, from um, undertaking free trade negotiations with China. Well, that's fair. But I mean, first of all, that agreement has not been ratified. It's not in place. Not and, in place and there are a whole host of, you know, kind of other alternatives that that folks have suggested about that uh, about that clause. But leave that aside. You know, the arrest. No, I'm talking about the impression from the Chinese point of view. Right. But what and, and, and so and so that, that the Canada is tilting. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so the Chinese arrest is what? Now, this Chinese arrest is, look, you won't get me to defend the rule of law in China. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, this, is not, this is not the first time. They were the arrest, the, the, uh, um, the, uh, the arrest of the Garrett couple um, a few years ago when Mr. Subin, who was accused of... Uh, stealing F-35 secrets, was arrested in Vancouver. So the Chinese have done this before, right. uh, held hostages, um, effectively held hostages. There's no defense for this, okay? Not for me, anyhow. Right. Uh, it's indefensible, and what it, had, what it has done is undermine any trust the Canadians may have in the rule of China, including into what a possible free trade agreement might mean. Mm-hmm. So, the, so in essence, the Chinese actions in this affair have been accelerated the deterioration in the relationship and actually made it much more difficult to get back even to the status quo ante. Mm-hmm. So, so, so that, that's, a, that's a fact. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 and the statements by the Chinese ambassador have made things worse, not better. Sure. Um, and, Nonetheless, firing Mr. McCallum for actually telling the truth. (laughs) Well, let's be, again, for the audience, Mr. McCallum was the the, the Canadian ambassador to China, a former politician um, who uh, was, I take it, well, as we know, he was in in effect fired uh, for speaking out about this issue. Yes, well, he was actually. My suspicion he was uh, he was speaking to the Ch- to Chinese language media in Canada, right. and I believe he was probably sent to do so at the instruction of the Canadian government. Right. His mistake, and, and what he said, the first line of his his was what he said was that that Ms. Meng has a good case, and we can get into that in a second. Um, and then, but his mistake was to then to detail the ways in which he, the three ways in which he does have a good case. Right. Um, that was probably improper uh, on two grounds. Um, one, of course, as an official of the Canadian government, he should be shouldn't be making um, a case on behalf of a defendant before the Canadian government. Right. Secondly. He's not a lawyer, as I understand it. He shouldn't be. He's making, not. He's he's not a lawyer, right? He's not a lawyer. He should right. not be making legal arguments. Right. Period. Right. He could have simply have said, 
Ms. Mung has a good case. Right. And that and that would be the end of the story. Um, and maybe let other people explain why she has a good case. Um, do you, would you like me to go f- and and, and um, parse some of what he said or what the no the, I, I um, no let, let, but I I guess the the kind of the question is, here you see the circumstances uh, between Canada and China is this a purely kind of Canada China imbroglio or is there does this raise kind of a broader attitude of China, uh, Chinese political leadership towards middle powers or allies of the United States. I mean, is this a, a broader kind of political um, uh, struggle here uh, that we're, we're witnessing, or it's just purely Canada and China? No, it's not purely Look, I mean, I see this as a, there's a pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, in which, for example, when the when China was unhappy about the placement of uh, theater uh, high altitude missile <coughs> um, defense in South Korea, South Korea, yes, three years ago, they did not retaliate against the United States; they retaliated against South Korea. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there is a pattern that uh, of a kind of strategic pattern that when China is confronted with an unfavorable situation, it picks on the weaker party. Right. Now, uh, this doesn't say nice things about China, that's for sure. Uh, moreover, but we also have to think that the other problem here, and that we should bring it up, is that the issue of Huawei technology in Canada was also on the table at the time. Uh, of Ms. Meng's arrest. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it is controversial. Uh, and it's controversial for more than the reasons of what the security risk would be, because Huawei has a fairly large footprint in Canada, because Huawei, after the collapse of uh, uh, the bankruptcy of Nortel, um, hired many of Nortel's former engineers uh, and has a large research presence in Canada, and much of the 5G technology that is being developed by Huawei has been developed on Canadian soil by Canadian engineers. Hmm. All right. Um, and so it, uh, part of the problem, if we ban Huawei, and we, we have historically taken a different position from the United States, uh, we've taken a position closer to that of Great Britain, that basically Huawei... Uh, equipment that is used in Canada is sort of taken apart and examined um, before being put in place. Um, that's uh, similar to the, what the British do. Um, and so, and we had not taken a position of whether we would ban Huawei equipment. And if we did ban Huawei equipment, we would actually damage, be damaging our research and development infrastructure here in Canada and sometimes damaging our trade relationship. Yeah. So, so this is a problem for us, um, and uh, and Canada is caught in this larger technolo- technology nuclear cold war. And the question is, what position we would ha- want to have in this? And it's all bound up together. Um, and uh, my my personal feeling is that the Canadian government once uh, I'm I'm not taking any particular position of whether Canada sh- should or should not have arrested Ms. Mung. Mm-hmm. Um, that, 
political position. But once you have arrested her, you sh you should have at least you should be able to explain yourself in ways which actually to help clarify the question. If it is purely a question of the extradition, and we believe that the extradition um, should take should not will not necessarily take place, but should be take its course. Um, but we take we are neutral on the outcome uh, for now and then that should have been explained much better to the Chinese side and not at, because the Chinese side otherwise, in absent an alternative explanation, the Chinese read this as Canadians siding with the United States on the whole range of issues, from the trade war to the technology war to the Huawei, etc. So and, do you... And, 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 and if Canada wanted to take that position, then it should have been more forthright. Right. But do you not think uh, the, now the former ambassador did not uh, uh, explain uh, the the official position of the Canadian government to uh, to China? I'm sure he did. Mm -hmm. But you know, I remember the Lai Chang Sing affair, which is affair. what? Sorry. My audience might remember Lai Chang Sing was a was a Chinese national who had been caught up in one of the largest um, corruption scandals in Chinese history in the late 1990s. Um, he fled, once he knew he was going to be arrested, he fled first to Hong Kong, where he somehow gained a visa into Canada. Um, and uh, we did not know he was in Canada until he dropped uh, $50,000 in one night at Casino Niagara. <laughs> In which case his identity was established, and then um, he went first claim refugee status in Canada, and then uh, argued against extradition. It took eleven years for him to come, for him to be um, sent back to China. The Chinese authorities were in deep consternation over this, and they never understood why they recently didn't pick pick him up and send him off to China. Mm -hmm. uh, now, so that. If that was the case on that, I doubt very much if there are that much more understanding today about this. They do, they, they do, not, they do not understand our rule of law, and, uh, um, and they, they don't necessarily have much patience for it. Um, so simply explaining this to them, it was not going to um, assuage the Chinese anger. Right. Because... It's and 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 in some ways for good reason. Huawei is a global company. The longer Ms. Meng is in detention, one way or another, it does hurt their business prospects. It does, in some sense, put them give them negative publicity, which is not good for the company. And so the Chinese are not very patient on that regard. And this is this doesn't just go from uh, uh, the top party leadership. If you followed any of the uh, uh, talk back on Chinese uh, social media. It was also very negative towards Canada. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, do you see a way for Canada to, you know, given the process takes time? Obviously, the judicial process takes time, and and the judicial slash political process takes time. Is there anything Canada uh, can do uh, in the interim to improve the relationship? And, and in particular, deal with the very unenviable uh, 
um, setting for both these gentlemen who've been arrested with very limited consular uh, interaction and uh, behavior by the Chinese authorities, keeping lights on and inter- and um, questioning them on a daily basis. Is there any uh, prospect of improvement there? Well, I mean, I, I, again, I go back to my Canada should have been much more forthright from the beginning. Right. Um, and, and simply taking a self-righteous position puts those people in further danger. Mm-hmm. Absolutely takes them in further danger because the Chinese will, because that in a sense will be saying, it's essentially condescending and talking down to China. Right, right. Uh, and, um, and Canadians need to understand that. What Canada should have done in the should have been doing is from the beginning reassuring China, the Chinese authority that that our, the process is fair will will take place in a way in which um, it it is open and transparent and that we actually expect the same thing from the Chinese side. Um, fair enough, and, I guess. The- and, and, and the other thing I would have done, I mean, they did it later on, and, and I think if we'd done that from the beginning. We might have um, garnered more uh, and more active support from some of our allies, yeah. um, which have, which have, um, and not just the United States. Because if you're just looking to the United States to solve the problem, that simply adds to the Chinese impression that we are siding with the United States against them. Right. Um, and uh, in which case, why should they release Mr. Spaver and uh, Mr. Carver? Okay. Um, and. The the other thing, if if we had been a little bit more diplomatic in some ways from the beginning, um, I mean, in the case of Mr. Kovrig, um, there is at least an argument that the Chinese government is violating the Vienna Convention. Well, yeah. uh, fair enough. And, uh, fair enough. And and and, and, uh, and but in for that we need deep and robust support from our allies. Right. Um, to in defense of the Vienna Convention, um, but the, the the lukewarm support for most of our allies suggests that nobody's willing to shed to to waste their capital on this one. Partly because I don't I don't think they're that sympathetic to the Canadian position. Okay. Well, uh, you know, uh, obviously, it would appear we don't have an immediate. Re- ability to resolve the matter as between Canada and China. Um, but I, I really appreciate the uh, full examination that you've given uh, our audience around uh, this issue. And indeed, it may be necessary at some point to come back to it as we see it evolve over the next uh, the next months. But I want to thank you, Jeremy, for taking this time to uh, to uh, join us and talk about uh, both China's foreign policy generally, but in particular the Canada-China um, uh, difficulties. Thank you. I think there's much more to be said on the Canada-China thing and on the Monk case, but uh, we'll leave that for another time. Okay. You've been listening to the Global Symmetry Podcast with Alan Alexandrov. This episode was edited by Kyle Fulton. And the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle. You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com.